Welcome to episode number 157 of the Northern Miner podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I am the online editor of the Northern Miner, and I also help take care of social media. And we have a very special episode for you today. It features George Hemingway, and this is the speech he gives to open up the Progressive Mind Forum, which took place last week at the Mars Discovery District in Toronto. And he gives an outstanding speech on trust. And trust is one of those issues that we all think we understand and don't really need a speech on to explain. But frankly, I I think this speech is a must listen to anybody in the business world, because ultimately what George Hemingway untangles is really the difference in perception, say, that we have between Amazon and Walmart, for example, and why Amazon can do certain things that Walmart can't, and really how this applies to the mining industry. And trust is at the core of this whole speech. So this is, again, in my opinion, a must-listen speech, uh, particularly if you're in mining, but really for anybody that is in business, whether you're an entrepreneur, employee, if you're in marketing, this is massive. And so, yeah, this is very exciting to present you this episode. So that's coming up. But first, we're going to take a look at the website. We have a new story from Tom as a party. And he returns to this Ecuador issue. They're, they continue to have pushback against this opening up of the mining industry in Ecuador. So Tom as a party goes into detail on this pushback. And I mean, Latin America is a very, uh, there's a lot going on in Latin America right now. We have the election in Bolivia. We have the protests in Chile. So there's a lot of unrest in Latin America right now. So we're seeing it also affect the mining industry. So that's coming up. And we also have an update on Predium's Bruce Jack Mine. And Predium is a, is a company we've loved to follow at the Northern Miner. We've been covering them quite closely for the last, you know, as long as I've been there. And so we're going to get an update on Predium from our contributor, Brian Sylvester, And we also have some interesting moves in the rare earth industry. Again, don't count out the rare earths just yet. I mean, they have been unfavored for a very long time, but it looks like people think this sector is coming back and they think it's for real this time. So that's all coming up. And of course, we have metal prices. If you want to find us online, uh, just visit us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner, on Instagram at The Northern Miner, and on Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. And turning to the website, protests over austerity measures in Ecuador put investors on edge. That is our current headline, and it sounds pretty serious. A wave of nationwide protests has shaken Ecuador and investor confidence in the emerging mining jurisdiction. As part of President Lenin Marino's $4.2 billion financial deal with the IMF to fix the nation's strained finances, The Ecuadorian government announced a package of austerity measures, including an end to four-decade-old fuel subsidies. As a result of the cuts, gasoline prices rose by 24% to $2.30 U.S. per gallon, while diesel prices more than doubled to $2.27 a gallon. Nothing like raising gas prices to get people on the streets. What began as a protest by taxi drivers and truckers against the price increases rapidly escalated into a nationwide revolt drawing in farmers, students, and indigenous groups. Protesters mounted roadblocks on major highways, cutting some parts of the country off, and slowing production at one of the country's largest oil fields. In the cities, 
bridges and major roads were closed and some buildings were set on fire. And it got really serious here. At different points, protesters took control of the Corondelay Palace and the National Assembly Building in Quito, forcing the government to flee to the relative safety of Guayaquil, Ecuador's largest city and main port, 422 kilometers from Quito. President Marino ordered troops onto the street to enforce a curfew. Seven people were left dead and hundreds were under arrest. And finally, the president had to reverse course on the fuel subsidies, and he started negotiations with opposition groups, including the Confederation of Indigenous Nationalities, which played a key role in organizing the protests. Just for context here, I mean, for those of you that attend PDAC, you'll remember Ecuador has made a big push in the last couple of years to open itself up into the mining industry, saying we're open for business. Lending Gold bought the Fruta del Norte gold mine, which had all sorts of problems before, and they've been moving it ahead, and they're currently in the commissioning stage, and this is a large-scale modern mining project. So they're involved. Uh, Anglo-American and BHP have moved into Ecuador, as well as Chile's Caudal Co., and even INV Metals is there, and they were just facing a challenge against their Loma Larga gold mine, where... Uh, activist groups wanted to hold a referendum on their mine, and the Constitutional Court refused to hear applications for this. So anyways, stocks have taken a hit, and uh, London Gold and Saul Gold, who is also there, they ordered their staff in Quito to stay home and delayed shift changes at their operations in the provinces as major roads were blockaded. Some people see this as an opportunity. A week after the protests ended, Dundee Precious Metals acquired a 19.5% stake in INV Metals for $10 million. And many people hope that the turmoil will pass. Quote, The recent situation is of concern, but once the situation returns to normal, we remain firmly of the view that Ecuador is a great place to invest and has much to gain by welcoming foreign investment. David Larinas, vice president of the Ecuadorian Chamber of Mines, told the Northern Miner. The overall response seems to be that this is, you know, a quote, bump in the road, what one of the analysts described it as here. Uh, we'll see. So more pushback in Ecuador and a pretty serious pushback at that. I mean, this isn't only mining related. It sounds like this is gas prices, but everything is kind of getting lumped in together here. So another very significant report from Tom as a party. Also on the website, we have a story from Predium, and this is delivered by our contributor, Brian Sylvester. Predium's Bruce Jack Mine generates steady cash flow. The Bruce Jack Mine is in British Columbia's Golden Triangle, which you'll hear often referenced on this podcast. It's a very prolific district. It's an exciting area for Canadian mining, particularly BC mining. As I mentioned in our introduction, Predium is a company we've been following quite closely because when they came out, uh, they had these incredible grades. It sounded like uh, this is a killer project. And then what happened was there was a lot of controversy surrounding the deposit. I believe it was the Valley of the Kings deposit. And there were different consulting companies involved, including Snowden Mining, Strathcona, and Tetra Tech. And so there was all sorts of commentary suggesting that maybe it wasn't as good as it originally looked. 
But I mean, here we are seven years later, they have a mine going. So there is no question there is gold there. But it was quite controversial at the time. And I mean, if you do a search on Predium in the Northern Miner, it's well worth it. There's all sorts of drama around it. One of my favorite editorials that our former editor-in-chief, John Cumming, wrote is Predium petering out. I remember that story vividly. So anyways, so we have an update from Brian Sylvester here. The latest on Predium, earlier this year, Predium announced an updated life of mine plan for producing at a rate of 3,800 tons per day, a 40% increase from the prior mine plan. With Bruce Jack's reserves of 16 million tons grading 12.6 grams gold and a 14-year mine life. Despite the setbacks, the earlier setbacks, Bruce Jack is still one of the highest grade gold mines in the world. And Predium has turned a profit every single quarter since it moved into commercial production. Since then, Predium has generated $359 million US in cash flow, a number no other mid-tier gold producer can match over the same period. Through the first half of 2019, Predium posted $33.5 million U.S. in adjusted earnings, or $0.18 per share, and $81.1 million in cash flow. The market has rewarded the company with a $3 billion Canadian market cap. And we have a quote from Predium's president, Joseph Ovsenek. He wrote this in an email to the Northern Miner. It feels great to be in production and generating steady cash flow. And further, he continues... We have an extensive land package, one of the largest in the Golden Triangle, and it makes good sense to explore for another mine on the land we have the rights to. So they're also exploring around Bruce Jack. If we continue to see success like we already reported from our A6 prospect, located about 14 kilometers northeast of the Bruce Jack mine, I could see us increasing our budget to advance those high-priority targets. So despite the earlier controversies, it looks like Bruce Jack is... There's no question this thing's for real, and they are doing very well for themselves, and they are looking to grow their mine. As well, we have an update on rare earths, and this is from Denise Heckbert, and the title of her piece is Linus and Blue Line to Build Rare Earths Facility in the U.S. This is another pretty interesting development in the rare earth side. In May, Australia's Linus Corporation, the largest producer of rare earth materials outside of China, and Blue Line, a U.S.-based processor of rare earth products, signed a memorandum of understanding to develop a rare earth separation capacity in Texas. The project would focus on medium to heavy rare earths used in permanent magnets, catalysts, batteries, and electronics, providing much-needed separation capacity outside of China. It continues, the joint venture would be the only large-scale producer of separated medium and heavy rare earths products in the world outside of China. And yeah, I mean, from my understanding as well, and it goes into it in this article, is that you can mine rare earths all over the place, but you still need to ship it into China in order to process them because they have the expertise now and we don't have the facilities outside of China. And as far as I understand in the article as well, there's a import tax. When, so when you send your rare earths into China, as far as I understand this, there is a tariff that goes on. So they get a little royalty, basically, as a result of this. So anyways, so the rare earth industry is trying to turn this around and create alternatives. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, Chinese mines produce 70% of total REE ore in 2018, but China controls nearly all refining and processing capacity in the world. 
giving it greater control over the supply of usable rare earth elements. Now we have a quote from Linus's CEO and managing director, Amanda Lacaze. In a press release, she says, quote, this is an exciting opportunity to develop local separation capacity for our customers in the United States and to close a critical supply chain gap for United States manufacturers. Another really interesting thing about the article is it goes through some of the projects that are going on. Uh, it talks about Avalon Advanced Materials. Back in 2012, Avalon was one of the bigger rare earths names. There's also a company called Search Minerals, which the article discusses. And there's also an update on the Mountain Pass Mine. And you might remember Molly Corp owned the Mountain Pass Mine, and they were seen as the big fish on the rare earth stage outside of China. But when rare earth prices crashed, Mollycorp went bankrupt. And so a company called MP Materials owns the Mountain Pass Mine now. And so yeah, so check out that article on northernminer.com. It's got a great little survey in there in the last half of the article of what's going on in the rare earths industry, including say that Mountain Pass Mine that used to be owned by Mollycorp. So that is the latest on the website. And now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at Infomine.com for providing these prices to us, and it's just available to everybody online. Just do a search on Infomine metal prices into Google, and you should see this page show up. And on October 22nd, we have gold at $1,487.65, so back below $1,500. In the last three for four weeks here, when we've quoted this gold price at below $1,500, uh, last four quotes that we've had here, we also have silver at $17.60, and that is just below last week's $17.66. Platinum is at $889.91. Last week was at $893.67, so it's about $4 cheaper than last week. Palladium, however, at $1,761.16 per ounce is higher than last week, which was at $1,723.97. So maybe $38, $39 higher than last week. So palladium continues to outperform. Where it stops, no one knows. But when we started quoting palladium, let's see, maybe six or seven weeks ago, it was at $1,555 about two months ago. So now it's at $1,761, so it's over $200 higher. So that is significant. Also, looking at some of the more industrial-based metals, on October 18th, we have copper at $2.63, and that's a penny higher than last week's quote. Aluminum is at $0.78, cents, which is the same as last week. Lead is a penny higher at a dollar, and nickel is at $7.47, and that's below last week, which was at $8.16. So nickel is taking a bit of a breather. And tin is at $7.65. That's about 19 cents higher than last week. Cobalt is even at $16.10. And zinc is two pennies higher at $1.13. 
And coming up, we have George Hemingway from the Stratalis Group. He is head of innovation practice for Stratalis, and he is one of the leading futurists in the mining industry. He is a great speaker, and what I love about his work is he's very big picture, and I love the big picture. He discusses the general uncertainty. He, he relates the mining industry to the larger economy, and as he says in the speech, the mining industry seeks to transform, and he wants to help the mining industry reach its vision of the future. So as he explains in the speech, he sees trust as a fundamental feature of this transformation. He is introduced by Northern Miner Group publisher Anthony Vaccaro, and Anthony gives a bio for Mr. Hemingway. So I'm going to let Anthony take it away and we will see you on the other side. George Hemingway serves as partner and head of the innovation practice at Stratalis, which is a growth strategy and innovation consultancy. And he advises CEOs and boards of leading organizations on the future and how to conquer uncertainty. George is considered one of the leading futurists in the mining industry, having delivered over 100 keynotes globally on innovation in the future at venues ranging from the World Mining Congress to NASA and the Pentagon. He's a published author and a monthly columnist on the future of the industry and disruption. George serves on several corporate and philanthropic boards and as a strategic advisor on innovation and growth to the Lausanne Institute at the University of Toronto, who are also happy to have joined us this year for the first time. Hello, Leslie. So without further ado, George, please take the stage. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for coming today. I'm going here to talk today about the future, about transformation, about what it takes to make it happen. And I'm going to spend a lot of time today talking about trust. Because Anthony's right. We spent the last few years talking about technology, talking about disruption, talking about all these things that, that companies big and small are trying to make happen. We've got a vision. But the challenge isn't just the vision, it's what it takes to get us there. And trust is going to be a critical component of all that. As Anthony already did, he introduced me, so I won't spend too much time talking about myself, but I do run the innovation practice for Stratalis, and we're a growth strategy and innovation consultancy. What we basically do is advise the CEOs, boards, and executives of some of the world's leading corporations, from mining to industrials to banks to food, on the future, on uncertainty and what it takes to understand it, to mitigate risk, and to take advantage of it in their strategies. And why this is important is because I'm gonna spend a lot of time today talking about something other than mining. I'm gonna be talking about lessons learned from other industries, glimpses and glimmers of what's happening, and then what that might mean for our industry as we seek to transform into the future. So we live in incredible uncertain times. These are incredible uncertain world that we're in and every year seems more and more uncertain. It's a world that's highly fractured politically and otherwise. It's a world where in a flash titans of industry become global pariahs. Where billion dollar companies that are meant to be the future of work find themselves not really working out at all. It's a world in which our friends become our enemies and our enemies are seemingly our friends. And through all of this, we humans, companies, and the people that make it all possible, seem to think that the experiences we had in our past 
will somehow help guide us into our future. After all, everyone in this room has spent years and years and countless amount of time and money trying to become as experienced as we can. Why? To guide us into the future. But what's interesting is we often end up feeling like the taco that didn't see Tuesday coming, unable to keep up with the pace of change that surrounds us. Now, what's interesting is this. In incredibly unpredictable times, human beings tend to react in exceedingly predictable ways. About half of us rebel. We go ahead and we rally up against the inequalities of the world, right? We stand up for the things that we believe in, the injustices that we see. You, you had the, the hippies uh, rallying against the Vietnam War, the, the Occupy Wall Streeters and the 99 percenters rallying against the 1% and the injustices and the excesses of the banking industry. In politics, we see the same thing, especially in the United States, where I'm from. You see on one side nationalism and populism and isolationism, and on the other side socialism and even communism. These are all societal reactions to our discomfort. They're ways for us to fight back and to take comfort in something and to rally against the things that we see that are unequal. The other half of us react in, in kind of the opposite way. We seek comfort. We look for trust whether it's in patriotism or, or religion or, or even in celebrities and brands and idols that we build, we look for the things that ground us. Whether you're on the side of fighting for injustice and inequality and, and taking a more active stance, or you have a more passive, gentle view of dealing with uncertainty and change, there is a thread that ties through all the stories we tell ourselves. It's a, it's a kind of heroic saga that arose unstoppable enemies. The courageous came up to fight them. The villains fell, and in the end, all is good with the world, and we live happily ever after. Now, what does this have to do with business and with mining? Everything. Because we are at a time when the mining industry seeks to transform, a time unlike any other in centuries, where we have the technology, we have the will, we have the tools, we have the knowledge, and we have a potential problem, a challenge that needs to be overcome in order for the industry to reach its vision of the future. And it's that challenge I'd like to spend some time talking with you about today. So in the past, if you were a business, right, it was kind of easy. All you had to do was make money, profit with a capital P, right? And you look at Walmart. 40-something years of, of dividends and profitability, you know, along the way, uh, small-town American retail maybe didn't do so well. But hey, people protested, but that didn't kill Walmart. Walmart went on, because that's what businesses do. That's progress, right? Shopping malls, bigger stores, we love it. That was the world we were in, and it was good for a while. Take a look at Hollywood, Miramax, Oscars, lots of them, making plenty of money. And because of that, the industry was willing to overlook the fact that uh, the guy that ran the place was kind of a jerk. And that's putting it lightly. But it went on. Survived. Why? Because what was valued, the rule of the game that was played, was quite clear. Dollars, fame, shiny gold statues. And that's what counted. Everything else, we could brush aside. 
So what's the hero of our story here? The hero of our story is profit. And you can see Hercules and I share the same physique. Story is profitability. As long as you managed capital P, you were cool. But then things started to change, as we all know. And you look at it, Walmart's a great example of this. Retail was a great harbinger of what was to come, a glimmer into the future. Now, you take Walmart that made money year on year in, and you look at what happened when Amazon picked up Whole Foods. Same day that Amazon picked up Whole Foods, a business that didn't make money, by the way, Amazon's stock price rose enough to basically pay for Whole Foods and a little leftover for organic champagne for the staff. That's incredible. You pick up a business that loses money, you make more money. That's amazing math. Now, imagine if Walmart had picked up that same business. Would the same thing have happened? Heck no. Because Walmart was being treated to a different rule of the game. They were playing by different rules, and no one let Walmart know until recently. They kind of figured it out. What's driving this? Technology change made it possible, but societal change, how stockholders valued, how shareholders value, how venture capital valued, how society valued, changed. And that's what allowed this to occur. Now, the interesting thing about all this is that when we at Stratalyst look at industries that are ripe for disruption, we tend to see some similarities, some principles that seem to exist over and over again. I'd like you to focus on just one. Industries where customers or societies or governments want to see existing companies to change. And this is critically important for the mining industry and the natural resources industry in general because it's a truth that the industry faces. When companies are faced with customers or societies that don't like them for some reason, they end up paying the price. Take a look at Netflix, a very simple, gentle example. Blockbuster made most of its money from late fees. Anybody here like paying late fees? Uh, no, I didn't think so. So when Netflix showed up, people were more than happy to bail on them. Bye-bye, Blockbuster. What else? Banking. Okay, banking. I, I personally keep a fair amount of money in the bank. I feel like I should be paid for that, but I'm not. I end up paying a lot more to use ATMs and Lord knows what, despite it. I'm sure everyone else here does, too. Banks are a little bit like the mining industry. They've got a lot of processes, a lot of regulations. They're price takers. But unlike the mining industry, they, they charge fees to customers. And when you look at that, you've got a lot of very unhappy customers, which is interesting. We've been doing working in banking, understanding the scenarios of the future just this year. And we noticed that, hey, banks aren't really like that much in general. Lots of complaints if you look at the last five years. In fact, if you kind of compare what goes on with banks and, and what goes on with technology companies, if you ask people, most people would rate at least one technology company higher than their primary bank on all of those things that make you choose something if you had a choice. You know, do I like you? Do I trust you? You make my life easy, and so forth and so on. So it should come as no surprise that most Americans would also be willing to consider a technology company for financial services. Have they taken over banks yet? Are they, are they the number one? No. But are they a potential threat? A glimmer on the horizon? Yes, more than a glimmer on the horizon. If you look at Uber, Uber does car loans. Do they do it to you and I? Maybe not, but they do it to their drivers. Uber's a bank in a sense. I mean, at least a tiny little sliver of a bank. Want something that's even bigger than a sliver than a bank? Let's look at these guys. If you go to the Chase website, all right, Chase Bank, and you put it up, and then you slam all of Amazon's products next to it, you find that Amazon looks a whole heck of a lot like a bank. But don't tell anyone, because banks have regulations, and banks have rules. 
Amazon is playing by a different set of rules, a different set of rules, a different game, and people are willing to go along with it because the things they value don't necessarily mesh up with their perception of banks. It's interesting, we talk about the fact, right, that if you can't mine it, you must grow it. Consequently, if you can't grow it, you must mine it and all, all that fun stuff. And I never thought the words, hey, honey, would you mind bringing some Petri dishes out to the back so I can throw them on a grill, would come out of the mouth. But this is a reality. People are working on growing meat in the lab. And you've seen Beyond Burger, right, or Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger. But they're trying to take the first step and, and have us eat burgers that are vegetables. The next thing will be burgers that are grown in the lab. They're also trying to grow tuna in a lab. Why? I mean, is it going to be cheaper than tuna from the sea? Probably not. Is it going to be more tuna-like than tuna itself? No. There is something else going on in people's minds, a sense of value that is changing in the minds of consumers that would have them choose lab-grown tuna over the fish. You can grow meat in a lab, you can grow tuna in a lab, you can grow diamonds in a lab. Maybe one day you can grow gold in a lab and nickel in a lab, and let me say, maybe it won't be as inexpensive as the real thing. Maybe it won't even be as good. But hey, people are willing to buy tuna that isn't as good, and meat that isn't as good. Is there something that would drive people to choose things that seem irrational to the rest of us sitting here today? Is there an underlying societal change that could change the very fabric of our society? So think of it as well from this point of view. You know, I, I was kind of meshing this over in my head. You know, we're all talking about this technology, artificial intelligence and robotics and automation and self-correcting machines. And one day, the ABB, IBM, Hexagon, Komatsu, Caterpillar, Hitachi, joint venture, mega company that swallows us all up whole will provide us all with the same machines and, and we'll all be operating at the same level of performance. And in that case, would operating performance be a source of competitive advantage for a mining company as it was in the past? And if it's not, where will competitive advantage come from? Where will the winners come from? And more importantly, what will define who are the losers? Because what will define who are the losers may not just be who has the best ore body, although this will always probably matter, or who operates the best, but those things that stop people from transforming. I'd like to play a little game with you all. It's going to require some voting, so I'm going to ask you to please bear with me. I'll only make you do this twice. But I'll ask you all to raise your hands as you think about this question. Let's say you ran a corporate park. And, uh, and you've got your office building and all your people here. And you get to choose your next door neighbor, right? The person that's going to live next to you and listen to you day in and day out. You have a choice between a Swiss company, land of cuckoo clocks and watches and great chocolate, or a Russian company. All in favor of the Swiss company, raise your hands. Hmm. All in favor of the Russian company, raise your hands. You gentlemen Russian. Most people go in that direction. It's unfair. Let's call it what it is. I had a lady come up to me the last time I did this and say, why are you beating up on Russia? I'm like, I, I love Russia. But reality is reality. Here's the interesting thing. When you look at a Big Mac index, which is the nominal cost of a Big Mac across the world, you'll see the most expensive Big Mac in the world is in Switzerland. Interestingly enough, the cheapest is in Russia. What's driving that difference? There's a reason why the way you voted. It's the same reason that drives the success and failure of entire economies. Let's play this game one more time. You get to choose between your neighbors. On one hand, 
you get the lovely folks at Disney, right? Land of imagination and fun. And the other choice you have, I'll choose a Canadian company. You get your wireless carrier. <laughs> I never said I played fair. All in favor of Disney. All in favor of Bell. That's not bad. Last time I did this, one person raised their hand. Turns out he sat on the board of Bell. <laughs> Slightly embarrassing. What's the thing that ties together Disney and Switzerland and Bell in Russia? What is the one thing that drives the difference between these? And it's not just the fact that you all want to wear these pretty hats. There is something that differentiates the potential for success and failure in the future. Something that is going to drive those that succeed and those that fail, those that transform and those that stagnate. The permission to play we all seek, and that is trust. Trust is the new competitive advantage. Now, you could say, but trust has always existed. Trust has always mattered, right? We've always needed trust. True, but not in the same way we need it today. Because before, a single point of reference, profitability, may have been enough. Today, the game has changed. Trust is the reason why Wells Fargo, one of the most respected banks in the United States, is struggling today. Trust is the reason why Facebook, the place where you would go to meet your friends, you would talk to grandma, that, that you would go to hang out with those high school buddies that you would never want to see in real life, struggles and faces European, American, political and social desire to break it up and make it pay. Trust is the reason why mining companies will face a challenge in the future. And some will succeed, and some will struggle. It's interesting. We don't just see this in mining. We see it in the periphery as well. Here in Canada, I understand you have an election coming up just right now. Scandals impact not just your commercial, but your political realm. So much so that even mining companies, considered by some not the most trusted, say, hey, I don't know that we can have you associated with us. It's not because you don't do a great job, but we just can't have that, that stigma. It's all about trust. Don't just take my word for it. Take the word of the folks at Harvard Business Review, because if they wrote it down on paper, it must be true. They say that companies that succeed in the future don't just deliver value in terms of profitability, but they'll deliver more. They'll deliver trust. Why do I say that? We talk about the triple bottom line. People like to discuss it. Not just profitability, but, but people and planet. And that these are important for corporations to have to succeed. But what are we really saying when we say we want to have a strong triple bottom line? We're saying, shareholders, trust us, we'll make you money. People, trust us, we'll be good. Planet, trust us, we'll be responsible. It's creating a stool three pillars on it. When one starts to wobble, the other two hold you up, which is better than just having one that wobbles and brings you down. But it's all about trust. Trust is the driver of transformation. And the driver of trust are people. People are the biggest challenge, right? It's not that the technology doesn't work, right? It's that people are the things we need to convince. It's people we need to trust us. It's people that bring down companies. 
So you look at WeWork, right? This is a company that's laying off 2,000 people today. This is a company that in the space of this year is going from potential IPO to, I don't know. And why? Is it because they didn't make money? No. We all knew they weren't making money. They didn't make money the year before last or last year. No one thought they were going to make money this year. That's because of trust. It's because there's only so far you can go flying your jets around the world and hiring Gwyneth Paltrow's cousin as an energy healer before people start to look at you funny and say, I don't know if I trust these people. Trust is the reason why the current president of the United States is having trouble. You say, but no one ever really trusted Trump. That's not true. The people that supported Trump trusted him to deliver on his promises. And for a while, he fought. He tried to deliver. He made change. You may not like it, but it doesn't mean he wasn't playing to his base. But you can only go so far before what you deliver on one stool is overcome by your lack of trust in another. It's all about trust. Now let's talk about the mining industry. Anthony says the mining industry is an industry that's changing. And I agree. But it's not an industry that's had to change for a long time. The reason it's changing is because some of the fundamental dynamics that have kept it static are becoming wobbly. So in the past, right, mining had captive customers, still do. There's not a lot of replacement for that nickel or that platinum you need. It had governments that are reliant on the money and the taxes that mining brings, and whole societies, whole cities built up around mining. And it had a cyclicality that at least was understandable. What goes down must come up. And so because of that, you've got license to operate, you've got plenty of demand, you've got plenty of capital. And because of that, the mining industry, while the rest of the world has gotten smaller, this little thing alone can invade Nicaragua, the mining industry has gotten larger. While the rest of the world has gotten more modular and flexible, the mining industry has gotten more capital intensive and fixed. And while the rest of the world has gotten more diverse, the mining industry still does look a little bit like the Lego management team a couple of years ago. Here's the thing, right? BHP just came out this week and said 25% of our workforce is female. And we should applaud them for that. But we should also be realistic. In pretty much any other industry, 25% sucks. It's a great move. And let's not forget, they're the leaders of the bunch. Because of that, We've been static. It's not because we as individuals don't want to. It's that as an industry, we really haven't had to be dynamic. So when hard choices come, we make the choice that seems easiest. Now look at the world in which we exist today. It's a world in which there is a greater feeling of inequality between the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots, where you see the Occupy Wall Streets or the Tahir Squares a year ago, or you see what's going on in Hong Kong. It's a world in which you see more and more environmental disasters coming up over larger and larger amounts of time. And it's a world in which, right or wrong, people blame the natural resources industry for the increasing intensity of this change. So much so that countries are basically saying, hey, we've got to get rid of all that you know, carbon-based fuel. So much so that one of the world's largest natural resources and energy companies has a CEO who says, my next car is going to be electric. Why? Trust. Because you've got to rebuild trust. You've got to be part of that wave of change, or that wave will hit you and knock you over. Even tightly controlled economies like China are bowing to the pressure of society, which is the reason why 
we see such drivers, even in the natural resources and energy industry, the impacts of losing the trust of people. Society is driving our change. And even the largest, most controlled economies have no choice but to bow to its pressure. And regulators, governments, more than happy to play along. This is one of my favorite things where New York, my home state, sues Exxon and, and, and sues Shell, not for causing climate change, because that wouldn't work in court, but for not properly accounting for it in their financial statements, because that's fraud. One way or another, if they don't trust you, they'll find a way to make sure you listen. Imagine 30 years ago in Canada, a mining project stopping because of caribou. Now, maybe that would have happened. But nowadays, it was part of a conversation that we were having with a mining company around might we or might we not be able to build a mine because of caribou. Those are conversations that might not have happened years ago because what we value in the world is changing. There are 119 elements on the periodic table. I invented one last night, Georginium. About 75% of them are, are, are in an iPhone. So you would think that Apple would be your closest friend. Not even for a second. The folks at Apple are trying to draw a thin green line between themselves and the mining industry, between themselves and the reality of the world. And if you can glance by the fact that, that children are building phones in factories in China, they'd like you to believe that they are recycling metals and making the world a better place, that they are not the villain that you are. So much so that they've invented a whole new element, a new aluminum. Wow, look at these guys. Is there anything they can't do to separate themselves from the industry, to build trust? They're the hero of this story, not us. And the problem is that the mining industry gives them plenty of ammunition. Now, I want to say, the last few years, last year in particular, we've been working with all the big mining companies to think about tailings and to think about technology and to think about energy. And there's some real moves being made. But it's going to take more than just one two or three big mining companies to make the difference. It can't just be BHP and Valet and Rio Tinto and Freeport. It's going to take more than that because the price that's being paid is the price of decades, the price of perception, and the price that's going to require all of the industry to come together to make change. Because what is valued is changed. And the challenge is that the way to get to a new future requires adopting new technologies like artificial intelligence, like automation, technologies that in their very nature, true or false, are believed to take away jobs. Artificial intelligence will get rid of you and I. Automation will get rid of everybody else. Voila. We can sit back at home and watch Netflix all day. But will we be able to? Because when we look at the greatest uncertainty facing the industry, it is not the uncertainty of technological feasibility. It's not the uncertainty of whether we can implement it. It's the uncertainty of acceptance. And what drives the uncertainty of acceptance is, come on, everybody with me here. Thank you very much. 
The world is willing to blame big business for all of its ills, whether it's the pharmaceutical companies, or the financial services companies, or the banking companies. Governments are willing to follow along and play suit. There is a wave of change crashing over the industry. It's right there on the horizon. And when such change comes, you have two options. Option number one, you can stand like the oak, firm and tall. You can dig your roots deep and hope that you survive this change. And that works for some. Or you can ride the wave. And that's what it's going to take for most. Now let's say you decide you want to dig deep and you want to build roots, right? What do you need to have? You need to be the biggest, the baddest. You've got to have economies of scale, economies of scope. You've got to have government protection. You've got to have all those things that let you gobble up everybody else. And you can be the last oak standing. I mean, what you're looking at over here, ladies and gentlemen, are buggy whips. They were used for, for carriages in the past, for those of you that don't know. These are beautiful buggy whips, by the way, very high-quality buggy whips. I mean, if you want a high-quality buggy whip, I know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy that can get you one of these buggy whips. But this is the last remaining buggy whip company. Why? Well, things changed. They stood like an oak. They survived and bought up all the other buggy whip makers. This is Fifth Avenue in New York City, Easter Day, 1894. Can anyone find the car? Anyone? I'll give you a, you got it? All right, it's right there. Here's the car, Fifth Avenue, Easter morning, 19 years later. Can anyone find the horse and carriage? Anyone? It's in the same spot. Now, if you're a buggy whip maker, if you're the last buggy whip maker, you have one loyal customer. Being an oak works for some, but not for long. So your option number two is to ride the wave. Ride that wave. And riding that wave means building trust. And that's why we're seeing BHP talk about social value, putting it right next to financial statements, talking about what it means to consider society alongside profitability. It's why we see Anglo-American talking about being the best possible partner in development and sustainability. It's why we see Valet launching PowerShift in order to reduce its GHG emissions and cut back on its energy. It's great. It's being part of the wave. But it's also not enough. Not on their parts, but on everyone's part. Because it will take a movement to change the future. And even then, it will take an understanding that it will take time to actually affect that change in society. So I asked Mark Kudafani about this. I said, Mark, you know, we're talking about trust and how important it is to transform. And he says, absolutely right. In order to transform, we have to build essentially a social contract. People have to believe and trust that we will deliver more than just profitability to ourselves, that we will take care of them and show them the benefits in our change. Trust is the key. And it is the key to transformation, the key that we must all do together. Because we must all hang together. Or we'll all hang separately. Trust matters. It is the key to the future, the key to transformation. And the one thing we need to think about, the showstopper to our vision of the future that we've all laid out, because we have the technology, we've got the artificial intelligence coming on that horizon, whatever AI is. We have the potential. And now all we need is the trust of society to change. 
and it'll take all of us to make it possible. Thank you very much. We'd like to thank you for listening once again to this week's episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. We really hope you enjoyed that speech. I thought it was a really profound, interesting speech on a very simple subject. But as Steve Jobs says, simplicity is sophistication. George Hemingway did an outstanding job to open up the progressive mind forum. We're going to have more speeches coming up in the coming weeks. Feel free to add a review in the Apple Podcast directory. And feel free to send this podcast to some of your friends uh, online. Feel free to share it. Again, I think there's some pretty profound insights here on the nature of the modern economy and even just marketing and branding, all that good stuff. So we look forward to seeing you again next week. And until then, take care.